Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in the order that they were published. And we have come to the end of a long strain of, of, of stories with Autofact, published in the end of 1955. So Autofact is a really nice conclusion to... Um, at least one strain of Philip K. Dick's thought that he explored in various ways in in his early stories, and that is the question of automation. And this is a straight-up story on automation. Yeah, there's other themes maybe hidden around it, but it's at its core, it's a statement about automation and work and, and to a degree, its impact on the environment. But ultimately, it's about, it's, it's about the bad, why automation is bad for us. Now, he's looked, looked at it different ways in different stories, such as um, such as Second Variety, I guess, where that was about automated war. And this is actually about automated war to a degree as well. So we might want to think about it alongside uh, that story, Second Variety, which was written much earlier in, in his career. Um, so with, with that kind of introduction, there's not much more to say. It's, it's his statement on automation and I think if you've been listening along, you know my feelings on automation. It's I think this is something that Dick did Dick did not see the liberatory potential of, of automation. And I don't think work is going to to save us. I'll, I'll say a lot more about this when we get to um, what's a galactic pot healer, which is all about work and meaning in life, the meaning we draw draw from our work. But I'm not, I don't think that's where we primarily get our meaning from. And I, I've had a lot of jobs, and some job people you know, would have considered quite good. But I can't think of too many times where I felt kind of inspired and enriched from my work. You know, even when I had the quote-unquote good jobs, it was something I did not necessarily look forward to every day. I looked forward to other things in my life, certainly, but not that. So I don't quite see his fetish for kind of you know, workers in the factory um, or even the crafters, right? What's bad about the automated, auto automated factory, the robot factory? If it frees us from work, it, it produces the post-scarcity we need, which is the foundation for socialism and broad-based equality and prosperity, right? I mean, this is shared both on the left and the right, this idea that more production, more productivity will, will kind of create broader and shared prosperity, Anyways, um, and I, I just think automation is the way to get there. Uh, anyways, um, Autofac. Originally published in Galaxy in November of 1955. It can be found in the fourth volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick. I think it's the opening chat story in that, in that volume, actually. Um, so it's the fourth volume of the Collected Stories. Minority Report. 
So into the, let's, let's just jump into the story. It's about it's set in a post-apocalyptic world in which you have these survivors of a war and they're trying to shut down this automated factory. And the reason they want to shut down the automatic factory is it's producing for a war that's long over and it's not producing for human need, I guess. So we have three men, Perrine and Morrison are from one settlement and O'Neill's from another. And they're kind of working together despite being from different settlements. They're waiting for this truckload of supplies to arrive from the automated factory. Their goal is to convince this system of automated factories that they no longer want the goods it produces. So the truck arrives and they destroy all the crates it unloads before them. And they're thinking that this will convince the automated factory to change, to deliver something they want. But a moment later, a second load, identical, is unloaded from the truck. So it doesn't learn the lesson of the destruction. It just sees the destruction as, well, we need to make more. So it sends this other, more crates. A moment later, okay, so the next attempt then is to drink the milk delivered from the factory because all the milk is is automated. And so they've got an interesting idea here of like the lab-grown meat or dairy products. Um, as someone who doesn't eat meat myself and who cares a little bit about animal rights, that's why I made that decision not to eat meat. It was basically an animal rights issue. You know, I, peop, you know, I sometimes get asked, you know, would you drink or would you eat the, the factory meat, you know, made in the lab? And I, I said I probably would. I don't know what it would taste like, but hopefully they would perfect it. And, you know, it's from an animal rights perspective, I, I don't see the problem with making meat in a lab. This is milk that's kind of made in the lab, so I don't know if it's any good. But they pretend it's really horrible. They drink it and they, they kind of say it's disgusting. This leads to a request for more information, and the men need to, like, they need to report what's wrong with it. Well, they write that it's pizzled, P-I-Z-Z-L-E-D. And they hope this will just kind of confuse and the autofac and get it kind of to kind of throw a wrench into. So it's a kind of sabotage. They're hoping to sabotage it, essentially. They want to find a way to shut it down. And the reason they want to find a shut away, way to shut it down is it's consuming the local resources and it's producing things that aren't really necessary for these communities anymore. So it's, there's a difference between like production for need and it's not even production for a market or even a constructed market because no one's buying this stuff. It's it's completely detached from need. That's the problem. Now you wonder, would they like the auto fact if it was making things that they needed? Perhaps, but uh, it's just presented as something they need to shut down. Not really necessarily reprogram. They're trying to break it. So at O'Neill's house, it's in the Chicago area, they explain the problem that the auto facts caused. The system was set up before the war to be automated. And be, the idea was kind of very much like what you have in uh, the Defenders is the war will be fought autom by automatons, but, or the gun, the gun's another example of this, you know, you create a defense system that will survive even if you're defeated, right? So your enemy can't win in the end. Which is good at the time, perhaps, because it keeps you, allows you to do the war effort Despite losses, it lets you to put more of your population into into uniform to fight the battles. But it also means it can't be stopped. There's no clear way to stop it. And they're worried that it'll continue just basically to consume all the resources of the planet till it's gone, till the planet's destroyed. Now, a robot from the factory 
arrives to respond to their complaint. This is kind of the factory representative who's responding to the, the formal complaint made by the people, which is interesting that despite being automated, it does have this facade of responsiveness to the public. This, so this factory representative denies that the milk has any defect. Basically says, you know, I looked at it, it passes our quality control. So there's something wrong with you if you say it's Pizzle, which is, which is really fascinating too, because there's a, a, you know, to people who maybe don't consume as much as is expected, right? And they might say, well, I don't want that stuff. And there's sometimes the social pressure to say, well, there's something wrong with you if you don't like that. Right? If you don't like that TV show, right? There's, you, it's, it's your problem. It's not the problem with the product. And that's kind of what they get here. It's like the project is perfect. It totally meets our schematics. So O'Neill engages in a game with the factory representative, trying to make it clear that they no longer want the milk. And the robot explains very rationally that the cows are all dead. Only synthetic milk can be made. So you'd be crazy not to want our synthetic milk because then you'll have no milk at all. And he also says there's no outside production. We're the only ones producing milk. So he assures the group that production will go on. There's no way around it. So one of the men upset just beats up and destroys the robot. But all this does is brings in a repair crew of robots who then fix it. So this system is really well designed. It's, it's able to defend itself. It, it, under, it, it responds to crises. It can be repaired. What it can't do is understand the needs of the community it's it's supposed to serve. And that's true of a lot of our institutions. I, mean, I do have problems with Dick's overall view of automation, but he's got a lot of good points here in the sense that often institutions don't respond to people in the way they were designed to or the way that it seems from within the institution that they're supposed to do it. You know, police is a good example of that, right? This is the main critique of, we get in the TV show, The Wire, about police office, police departments, is that they serve themselves, they don't serve the outside, but they present this image that, of course, we serve the public, protect and serve, it's on our cars. So, O'Neill reminds them that there's all these systems of self-defense and that the autofact can learn. The auto fact is not stupid. It, it can adapt and it was programmed to adapt to different circumstances and to change. And that's part of the problem with it. If it was just a simple program, they could sabotage it more easily, but it's a bit too smart to be easily sabotaged. So a second factory representative comes and reveals that they're low on some material. Now, O'Neill thinks that this might be an advantage they can take, you know, they can, something they can take advantage of. If there's some like component they need, to function, right? Like one mineral. Maybe they can just control that mineral or get rid of it or convince the autofact that that doesn't exist anymore and therefore disrupt the whole process, right? It's like that one part they need or that one mineral they need to do, or nothing can be made without it. That this might shut down the whole system. So they want to, they, they're trying to exploit this, this weakness. So later on, O'Neill and Morrison go to the mining area. They pass some communities which are trying to start from scratch without machines. And this is a common motif we have, not just in this story, but in others, like in John's World, the sequel to Second Variety has this idea of communities in the future growing up on a new foundation that doesn't rest on and isn't based on machinery. 
So in O'Neill's opinion, it's not possible to start without machines at all. So they go back and they need to, they, he decides they need to use back orders to find out what element is they're missing, what element the, the autofact is missing, and collect it for themselves. And they think this might shut down the, the factory. Now, they find out that the missing material turns out to, it turns out to be tungsten. So they create a massive pile of tungsten, which is equal distant from three autofacts. So they, they kind of have this elaborate plan to take all the nearby supply of tungsten and put it in equal distance from the three autofacts that are kind of active in this sector. The idea is they'll attract searchers from the nearby regional factories. And after one comes, five other comes. And they start, carts arrive, and they start draw, drawing the stuff away. But Detroit's autofact arrives late. And when they do, they start battling. So the, the autofacts start to actually fight over this limited supply of tungsten. The result of this is that the autofacts stop producing consumer goods and shift back to a full-blown war footing. So this actually makes things worse for the humans who are they're kind of stuck between these different automated factories. After attacking each other, many of the autofacts are in fact disabled because they start to actually go to full-blown war with each other. Perrine notices that instead of the automated factories, actually vines are coming back into the world. So it seems nature is starting to make a comeback. Local manufacturing and food production has revived the human settlements. And this goes back to the warning O'Neill has that we can't be completely without technology. So it's a matter of controlling technology and controlling these systems. Now they go to investigate the factories and they find them destroyed, or many of them destroyed. Perrine and O'Neill discuss opening up the factories for production, but under their own control. They think, well, why can't we just occupy these, right? Take over the means of production for ourselves. And, you know, they're very productive, they, they, but it's just their programming was the problem, right? Not their productive capacities. They enter the Kansas City Autofact to see what they can revive. They go down deep into the factory, and of course it's been mostly destroyed in this war between the autofacts, this civil war among them. And they look for things to salvage, machines they can control, maybe systems they can take power of, and they go deeper and deeper into the factory, and Morrison feels something begin to move. And they learn that the autofact, although destroyed, has been sending out copies of itself, like seeds around the planet, and possibly to even other planets. So the virus that is the autofact is going to spread, it can't be contained. And not just the destruction of Earth is inevitable because they, they're even these things were even programmed to sustain themselves if destroyed. But perhaps other planets will, will suffer the same fate uh, as Earth, the destruction of all resources. So the sort of happy ending where te that's teased at the end, that the autofacts are destroyed and maybe human communities can have a chance to breathe and the nature has a chance to breathe. That's thrown away at the end, and we get the true bleak ending that we come to expect from many of Philip Dick's stories. So this is obviously a story about automation. It's right in the title. It's one of his best on the subject, I think. I think along with Pay for Printer, we have, you know, I, I actually like pay, uh, pay for Printer a little bit better because uh, I think it's closer to what automation may look like in our future with 3D printers and, and makers and, and, you know, science fiction has dealt a lot with this kind of thing. But this is really a good, 
actually one of his best stories on this subject. It looks at the consequences of unrestrained consumerism on the economy, that it kind of creates a dysfunctional economy that doesn't really produce for need. It talks, of course, about war and how war creates waste. And then, of course, we got the impact on the environment. The autofacts were set up during an age when automation was needed for the war effort, but production continues long after the war. Despite humans' best efforts to shut down these factories to preserve Earth's, Earth's dwindling resources and natural environment, they cannot deprogram the automation no matter how much they try. So I talked in an earlier episode about Philip Dick's laws of robotics, right? And, you know, it's, they're, they're sort of, they're very different than Anasimov's uh, robotics laws. Robots, I guess one of them is the basic idea of Dick's law of robotics is that robots, and this is true also of systems, bureaucracies, and states in general, they will do what they're programmed to do endlessly, even past the point of absurdity. By sparking a war between the autofacts over limited resources, the humans hope to stop them, right, and, and hope to basically destroy them, get them to destroy themselves. However, the automated systems were designed in wartime and therefore were capable of reproducing themselves if repaired and even repair and repairing themselves if damaged. The end result will be the destruction of every natural resource on Earth. This cancer of the autofact will go on endlessly throughout the galaxy, perhaps. The team working on shutting down the autofacts is, I believe, inauthentic. They basically want to take over the factories for themselves, especially O'Neill. A third option is in the background, though, and it, but it's constantly disparaged by our main characters. And that is this primitive ruins, the squatters living in priv, primitive ruins, the, the non-techs, the non-technos. I'm thinking like the, in that story, is it Surface Raid, the one where these mole people from, the, from below the surface go on to the earth and see these Paleolithic communities? You know, those are, are kind of like that. You know, you remake the earth through hard work. You abandon technology, you abandon everything of the old way, and you kind of build on a new foundation. And we have these people in Autofact in the background. They're, they, they're kind of closer to late Stone Age. They don't really need the metals. so They don't care that the metals are being overused or the fossil fuels are being overused. The urban and technological survivors, the ones who want to take over the factories or redirect them, do want these resources. So in a way, I think the, the heroes of this story, the main characters we have, are themselves infected with the same virus of the autofact, and that is industrialism and this obsession with productivity and the obsession with the factory and the factory system. It's quite possible that through everything that the society that's going to endure is going to be these like late Stone Age types, the ones who completely abandon technology that they don't need to mine. They don't need fossil fuels. And we see that they start to domesticate animals. Quote, to the right was a human colony, tattered, scarecrows, gaunt and emaciated, living among the ruins of what had once been a town. A few acres of barren soil had been cleared. Drooping vegetables wilted in the sun. Chicks wandered listlessly here and there, and a fly-bothered horse lay panting in the shade of a rude shed, of a crude shed. So what do we have here? We have, um, well, the cows are declared to be extinct, but we have horses and chickens. So there's some domesticated animals still around. So there's husbandry, but it's not relying on technology. 
It's not much, but it's a start, and they may survive a world dominated by autofacts, at least longer than, than others. They're, they'll be more, they're, they're in a sense more sustainable. So that's the good guys of the story, not really our, our, our heroes. The named heroes. Significantly, Dick introduces the concept of entropy and connects it to the problems of post-scarcity in this story. Entropy is something Dick writes about a lot and thought a lot about. Here, the autofacts help humanity reach a stage where humans will want for nothing. And notice it, 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 know, it knows it's not at war, so it shifts to consumer goods. It's Even though they're not things that people want, it's what the factory thinks they want. Humanity doesn't really need anything. So it's this ideal post-scarcity that the, the factory, completely automated, produces everything we need and we just take what we want. There's no need for hoarding. There's no need for money. It's a total gift economy. But this sort of limits technological innovation. And this is one of Dick's criticisms of automation is that we lose the ability to do this stuff ourselves. The autofacts also don't seem, although they can respond to damage because they were made in wartime, so they're programmed to do that, and they can respond to situations in creative ways. They're not creative enough to create new products. They only insist that everything matches the blueprint or the recipe. This locks humanity into a single position forever. Now, what can break free of it is going to be the environmental crisis that will undo what is left of, of civilization. So that's it. I, again, my main feeling about this is I, I'm basically a Kropop, Kropopkian. Is that the right word? Of, I... I agree with Peter Kropopkin's view that technology is liberatory because it abolishes work and it creates post-scarcity. I don't see how we can have post-scarcity without either drudgery, a lot of work, or automation, or technology, machine, the machine. Right Now, maybe some people can come up with models, but I haven't found too many that satisfy me. The idea is, yeah, if we all worked really hard and we had full employment and you know, for, everyone has the 40-hour work week, we can produce a plenty for everyone. We, that's the world we have now, right? Or Now, yeah, there's a lot of BS jobs, as David Graeber talks about them, but let's ignore them for now. A lot of people work, and through that work, we produce a lot of more than enough goods and services and food and shelter and clothing for everyone to have more than enough. Right now, add technology to this, and let's say technology. What does technology do? Well, to, what technology does is it it allows us to do that same productive capacity without labor, or without nearly as much labor. And that, for me, still is the liberatory thing about automation. Because I, you know, it frees people from having to go into the nine to five job, which means they can spend time in their communities, in their families, developing their skills. All right, they can still do things. It's basically Star Trek is what automation gives us. Now, the way Star Trek gets there is with the particle matter replicator technology, right? So that that basically achieves post scarcity. You know, I don't. That's probably not likely in our lifetime, but work reduction reducing technologies is and yet so many people panic about this and worry about this and fear you know where are we going to get our money from where you know without realizing that the whole point of automation is that it abolishes the even need for money right because money is a way we we distribute scarce resources automation eliminates scarcity so again that's that's my feeling on automation it doesn't mean that dick's other critiques here aren't wrong that automation can lead to maybe systems that are more powerful than individuals 
we got to make sure there's human control over this stuff. Uh, we have to worry about the environmental problematic. But I don't think more work or more, you know, like physical labor is going to make us freer. Crafting is interesting, but that's a whole nother conversation we can have in the future. So it's it's getting late and I'm, I'm recording this one at almost 1 a.m. here in Taiwan. So I'm going to go down for the night because I already... I feel quite tired and I think it's showing in my recording. So um, with that, I'll just let you go. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments about Autofac or automation or what are your feelings on automation or the jobless future that gets predicted from time to time, please post them and I'll, I'll, I'll love to read what you have to think, what you think about these things. You could also email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And with that, it, we're done with the stories published in 1955. And so where do we go from here? Well, I'm going to do the novel that was published in 1956 before I get to the stories of 1956 because we're long due for looking at a novel. And that novel is The Man Who Japed. I'll be covering it. I'm not sure yet. I, I've already started doing some recordings on it, but I, I think it's going to be around five or six episodes. I did a really long recording not long ago where I only looked at like three chapters, but I I think it was like about an hour long. So there's a lot to say about this story, The Man Who Japed. It's maybe not one of the most well-known stories but or novels, but it has a lot to tell us and a lot to teach us, and it's got a lot of interesting things to say. So I, you know, I'm going to take my time with it. So plan on about five or six episodes, and then after that we'll, we'll look at the stories of 1956, and there's not... There's not many of them. I think there's three. Three stories published in 1956, and then we'll go back to a couple novels. So um, that does it. That's the future plan. So again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, please leave them below. Please share this with people that you think might be interested in, in Philip K. Dick. Um, but um, I'll see you next time. Come my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies.